First Kings chapter number 17, we're going to look this morning at about three chapters throughout the life of Elijah. We're not going to look at the life of Elijah in its entirety, uh, but we are going to uh, look at a good portion of it. And so we're going to look at different passages along the way as time allows. And, and uh, I already know that there's a lot more scripture in here than we have time throughout the message this morning to read in its entirety. So I hope that you'll make some notes, that you'll take this home, and that you'll consider this throughout the week this week. But we're going to read just this opening verse of chapter 17 and pray and get started this morning as we conclude our sermon series on being overwhelmed. The reality is, is that life at times is overwhelming. And all of us are either going to be overwhelmed by the things that life throws at us or we're going to allow our spirit to be overwhelmed by God so that we can rise above it and be sustained through it. And so that's what this series has been about and I hope that it's been helpful. The first Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And this morning I want to speak on an overwhelming warfare. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together again. Lord, thank you for these that have gathered this morning. Thank you for those that are watching and have joined us online. Lord, I pray that our hearts, again, would be open, that your word would penetrate into our spirit, and that you would be pleased and honored, and that your people would be helped and encouraged this morning by your word. Lord, make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've looked here over these last several weeks, what we've seen is in the life of Abraham, a man who uh, shows us what it is to have faith. We see a man who, even early on in his life, had a very remarkable faith. It's pretty remarkable that God could show up to him and him really not know God at a, on, a, on a deep level at this point and say, leave everything that you know and come with me. Uh, and he did it. That, that's, that's pretty amazing. We also understand that Abraham struggled at times whenever he was threatened or felt threatened to maintain that faith. If there was a break in his faith or a verge of break in his faith, it came when he felt that his uh, wife could be stolen from him uh, and that that could be his, his, his life disrupted in that way. Then we see by the end of his life or later in his life, then he finally has I, or his, his son Isaac and uh, he's finally been given that promise from God and God commands him to take him up Mount Moriah and to offer him a sacrifice. That in that, he never wavered. He, he immediately set things in order. He got the wood. He prepared for the trip. He did everything that was necessary. And by this point in his life, had faith had grown to such a point that the New Testament tells us in Hebrews 11 that he fully believed that if God required him to cut his son's throat and sacrifice him, that God was going to raise him from the dead. Uh, and so th this, the, the faith of Abraham, the Bible says, was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now, I, what I'm trying to do through this series is connect these things in our mind, in our heart. I'm not repeating them in, accidentally. This is, I'm very deliberate in rehearsing these things so that we're making the connection. And so that faith was imputed to him for righteousness or the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens in the moment that we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. When we put our faith in God, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account or put on our account. And so because of faith, we are saved. God's grace saved us 
through our faith. Without faith, we cannot be saved. We cannot please God. We cannot succeed in the Christian life. And so we saw in Joseph a life that was blessed and that showed us an over, what it was like to be overwhelmed with righteousness. The interesting thing about Joseph's life is, is that the Bible really doesn't chronicle for us his personal walk with God. It's very clear and obvious that he has a very strong and deep personal relationship with God. His character is formed by it. His decision making, even in dire circumstances when many people would have said, if that's the way my God is going to treat me, I don't want anything to do with him. Remember, he was sold into slavery and for 13 years he lived either as a slave or as a prisoner, uh, wrongly accused and put in prison before God raised him out of that. He didn't understand it, but it was God's preparation of what he needed him to become and to do later in life. And so his activity during that time, his response to those circumstances show us what a transformed life, a life that has the righteousness of Christ in it looks like, as he showed us what Jesus would look like. And so faith brought righteousness. That righteousness then we then see in Moses uh, brought us into the presence of God. And when we trust Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit then indwells us and is with us. And so we go from a process of, I express faith in you, God. I receive Jesus as my Savior. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to our account or into our life. And then the Holy Spirit indwells us and we live or we can live in the presence of God. Now because of that then we see in David someone that's a little bit more relatable at least to me uh, because I know what my life is like and how I struggle at times with sin and attitude and uh, and, uh, and outlook and things of that nature. And so, uh, you know, my sin doesn't look the same as it did when I got saved or when I was away from the Lord, but it's still there. It manifests itself in different ways. Uh, you could list it as a different sin, but, but when you look at the concept of the fact that just the sin is sin, it just separates me from God. I still have sin in my life. I, I'm still a sinner that's been saved by the grace of God. And in David's life, we see a man who we can look at and we can criticize easily uh, and we can be quick to point out his failures and his faults. And there were people in his life that paid a very high price for those failures and those faults. But ultimately, God defines him in two powerful statements when he declares that he is a man after his own heart and that when it says that he is the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so God doesn't view him as a failure. God doesn't view him as someone who, is, who has been overwhelmed and overwrought with sin. Though clearly there are points and times in David's life where that was the case. But David always came back. He always came home to God. Whenever, whatever he faced, whatever his shortcomings, whatever his failures, he never completely forsook he was always drawn back to God. God always brought him back. And we see that what brought David back, and when you see David in that, is his worship of God. And so our faith imputes to us righteousness, which then causes us to come into the presence of God, which then inspires our worship of God. So that even in times of disruption and turmoil, we are drawn to worship our God. In other words, it gets our focus and attention back on him and off of self, off of sin and on his holiness, so that we're brought back into the presence of God. But to what end? Why all that? And the answer, I believe, is that, that we see is in what Elijah is here to Ahab in chapter 17 and beginning in verse 1. 
And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. What is he here? He is an ambassador of God to the king. And so, like he is an ambassador, so are we an ambassador. We have been told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, that we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And so what does he say? Our, our role, our job in this world is to beseech people, to call people to repentance. That's essentially what Ahab has been sent to, or, or Elijah has been sent here to convey to Ahab. He's God's representative. He is sent to deliver what is essentially a declaration of war upon Ahab. Now Ahab doesn't apparently take it serious. We don't have any indication as his initial response. Elijah gives the message, Elijah leaves. Ahab doesn't record for us. He's going to tell us what he thinks of it later when he gets reacquainted with Elijah. But right now, it's, you know, it's if somebody came in here this morning and said, proclaimed and held up the service and, uh, and burst in and said, hey, uh, until I say so, it's not going to rain again, and walked out. We just, haha, continue, kind of recompose the service and continue on. There's not a lot of faith, a lot of stock is going to be given to that. I, in my opinion, that is likely the reaction that Elijah got from Ahab when he gives this initial condition or report. Uh, Ahab is not a godly man. There, Israel in the divided kingdom in the age when Israel and Judah are divided into two kingdoms, uh, Israel never has one godly king. They never have a revival. They never have a time uh, when, when God breaks through and where God is worshipped. Their entire existence as a nation uh, in this divided age is one of corruption and one of idol worship and one of being drawn away from God. Judah didn't have a lot of great kings, but they did have some. They did experience some revival. They did have some that led the nation to God. Uh, Israel never had that. But Ahab was a different, a different guy. He was a different cat. He led them to a whole nother level of, of, of atrocities against God. And so God finally says, I've had enough of this. Elijah, come here. I want you to go tell Ahab that it's not going to rain. Now, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. And, and drought is a hard thing even today. But the reality is, is that drought today, though it can be somewhat devastating, is not devastating at all compared to what drought was then. You can load up trucks of water. You can divert rivers today. You can do a lot of things. You can, you can truck bottled water and supplies anywhere that it's needed in a short amount of time today. But not so then. You get a lot more water in the back of a 53-foot trailer on a semi than you can on a caravan of camels. You can meet needs. They couldn't meet needs. When they had periods of drought, people fled their homes, left everything behind, and went somewhere else to ride it out. Or they stayed there and they died. And we're going to see the effects of that. Uh, and so, but... Uh, in all likelihood, Ahab initially didn't take that seriously. Uh, and so, but what, what Elijah is essentially saying to him is, Hey, Ahab, you have led the people to a new level of corruption and idolatry. God is going to cause the drought to come as punishment. If you don't repent, things are going to get really bad. And Ahab's not going to repent. 
God declares war on Ahab, but Ahab doesn't take it seriously. And the reality is, is that a call to repentance to a rebellious world is often received as the declaration of war. Even Christians in a church like ours don't generally appreciate it. If I got real specific and real pointed about real specific personal sins this morning and just preached hard on it, and I don't mean being hateful and ugly, but just got really pointed and really hard uh, about dealing with and ferreting out uh, specific sin and trying to deal with it, uh, as I know different struggles within the church, uh, that that's not generally going to be received well. Even by people that say, I want God to work in my life and I want God's blessing in my life. When you make that declaration to a lost world, it's almost always rejected. And today it's labeled hate speech. And the reality is, is that what Elijah's done is declared war on, the, on their society and their culture. And he's, and he's directed it at Ahab. And so Elijah has been readied for the fight. And I say that to say this this morning, that faith leads to righteousness, which brings us into the presence and the worship of God, and that prepares us and sustains us as we fight the good fight of faith that Paul describes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. I'm saying this morning that the Christian life is a battle. That there is a warfare that takes place between God and Satan, between the Christian and the culture, between the, the person and, and our spiritual life, uh, who we are and even internally, mentally in our own spiritual walk, there is a war. There's a battle. I fight a battle on uh, almost every day for my own mind. And so when we look and we understand the entirety, when we look at why do I need faith and why has God given me righteousness and transforming me? Why is he transforming me and why is the presence of God so important and powerful in my life and what does worship do as I exalt Christ in my own life? And the answer is, is that God knows that we are in a spiritual warfare and a battle in our own hearts and minds and against the world at large and against the enemies of God and in in order to sustain us, he has given us the ability to fight this good fight of faith. And we see that exemplified through the life of Elijah. Elijah, first of all, this morning takes on a posture for war. A posture of war. And what I mean by that is his stance, his attitude, his, his positioning. Uh, I, I get out once in a while and, and jog and walk in my neighborhood. And, uh, and so uh, as I go... My wife is extremely terrified of dogs. She won't hardly go unless I go with her uh, or somebody goes with her. And when she does go, there's parts of the neighborhood that she won't go on certain streets because uh, she saw a big dog there once, once upon a time. It could, have been, it could have been 100 years ago. If there was ever a dog there in the history of humanity, she won't walk on that street. Uh, and so even if I'm there. Uh, and so then I just, I go on every street. I just kind of deal with whatever comes. And I generally, if a dog comes at me, I, tr I generally attempt to make friends with it. Uh, and so I, I go and you get down about two thirds of the way and there's a little cul-de-sac and there's this big red dog. It's about that tall. His name is not Clifford. Uh, and, and he's about this tall. And he lays out in the middle of the street and sunbathes a lot of times. And if it's real hot, he lays up under a shrub by the house. Uh, and generally when he's laying out this time of the year in the middle of the road, uh, when I'm coming down to the end of that cul-de-sac and I start making the loop, 
He waits for me. His name is Samson. And that's how friendly I've gotten with this dog. I know his name. Uh, he told me once and I remembered. Uh, and so uh, I started going around the circle uh, and about a third of the way around the circle he stands up. And he starts walking toward his house timing it so that we meet at about the same time. So that I can just give him a little scratch on the head. I don't even stop. I don't even really break my stride. It's not like I give him a lot of attention or play fetch with him or anything like that. He just wants a good morning, Samson, and a little pat on the head. And I keep walking and he walks back to the middle of the road and he lays down. My wife's terrified of that dog. That dog has a lazy posture. Okay? Uh, there's a, a dog, one day we're walking down the same street, but on the other side, she will go on that street. And there's this poodle that's a full poodle. It's about this tall. It's a puppy still. Uh, and it comes running out one day. Uh, and Elena was still home. And it's like jumping up on me. She's freaked out. The, they're all like hiding off. The owner's coming out apologizing. Uh, and, and that's just, that's just a, a playful one. Uh, last week, I think, or the week before, we're going around the corner and these two little Boston Terrier puppies that are probably about four or five months old come running out. And, and I, I scratch it on the head. The thing followed me so far, I had to pick it up and carry it back to where, and start knocking on doors to try to find out where it belonged so it wouldn't get hit by a car. Uh, it was a playful posture. Uh, then, not long ago, in that same area, there was a, I, I don't think it was a Great Dane, but it was a pretty good sized dog like that. Uh, and it was more growling and aggressive and barking loud. It had a very aggressive attacking posture. And what I'm saying here is that Elijah comes to Ahab and he doesn't come flippantly. He doesn't come playfully. He doesn't come lazily. He comes directly and he pronounces aggressively, Ahab, God is declaring war upon you. There's a declaration of war. He has a warfare posture. I'm saying this morning, Jude chapter, or Jude chapter, verse 3, tells us that we are to earnestly contend for the faith. And I'm not saying that as Christians we go out and try to stir up conflict. I'm just saying a living out of our faith and a preaching of truth stirs up conflict in and of itself. We're not to shy away from that. We shouldn't be pursuing it and, and just trying to poke the bear, uh, but we should not be afraid to take a stand for God and for righteousness. And so Elijah takes on a posture of war, and in verse number one, he makes this pronouncement of war. So if you're following along in the notes, there's the, the pronouncement of war. The second thing here is that he then is following the command of God in verses 2 through 7 to go to the brook Cherith. And we see here the preparation of Cherith. God is now preparing him for what's to come. Elijah knows that God said go and tell Ahab that there's going to be a drought. What Elijah doesn't know is that he's about to stand before 450 prophets of Baal. He doesn't know that. But God knows that. And so Elijah is taken, Elijah doesn't understand that when the drought starts getting bad, Ahab's going to start searching for you. And Obadiah, we'll see, tells him that whenever, whenever Elijah comes and sends Obadiah to get Ahab, hey, he doesn't want to go because he says, you're going to disappear. He wants to kill you. And if I go tell him that you're coming and then you don't show up, he's going to kill me. And so he doesn't want to cooperate. Uh, listen, th things are getting bad. 
what does God do? God takes Elijah and he puts him at the brook Cherith and he feeds him there uh, with ravens in the morning and in the night. And he uh, provides for him water through the brook until it dries up. And what we see is that there is the preparation of Cherith. God preparing Elijah for the battle that he faces. And listen, God knows every battle that you'll face in life. And he will prepare you to face it if you're living in faith and righteousness and in his presence and worshiping him. And when we look and we see God preparing his man, that, that he is preparing him to face a spiritual and a mental battle and that requires him to prepare him spiritually and mentally. So what does he do with him? He isolates him from the crowd and he puts him in a place where he's alone and he doesn't have anybody to talk to but the fish in the stream and the birds that bring him his breakfast and his supper and God. And for however long he's here, presumably near three years, he is alone with God. And God is preparing him. And God is investing in him. And God is building him and strengthening him. And, I, and what I'm saying this morning is, is that the importance of our personal private walk with God and worship of God, it prepares us for whatever God allows life to bring our way. The third thing we see is that once he has prepared, that there is a preliminary engagement at Zarephath. And we look here and start getting into... Uh, the latter part of the chapter here, in verse number 8, the word of the Lord comes to him saying, "Get Arise and get thee, thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and, and dwell there. And behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Now, God knows that he commanded the widow woman, but the widow woman hasn't quite received the message yet. Because when Elijah comes and says, hey, God sent me, you're supposed to feed me, she says, wait a minute. I've only got a little bit of oil and a little bit of meal and two sticks. Leave me alone and let me cook this for my son and I so that we can eat our one last meal together and, and then just wait and die together. That's her attitude. And Elijah says, that's great, go ahead, but fix the little bit for me first. Now we preach this and we look at this and we teach this almost always from the vantage point of that this widow woman's faith is being tested and being grown and, uh, and God is working in her life. And clearly all of that is true. But what we seldom ever consider is what God's doing in the life of Elijah. Elijah has been alone with God and isolated for God, with God for a considerable period of time. And when we see this preliminary engagement at Zarephath, what we see here is that there is an exercise of faith in verses 13 and 14. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Listen, Elijah had to exercise just as much faith to make the statement as she had to exercise to cook the meal. Elijah needs strength and confidence that what he has experienced with God is real in his practical daily life and ministry. He's got to face 450 prophets and an angry king, not to mention Jezebel. That's right around the corner. It's on the horizon. 
And he doesn't see it coming yet, but God does. And God has to give him some strengthening of faith. God has to give him the reassurance that what I have told you and grown in you and invested in you in these last years and months at Cherith are real and practical and applicable to your own life as you minister to others. And so we see uh, that there is an exercise of faith. Elijah exercises faith in making the proclamation and the promise on the behalf of God. And the widow woman exercises faith by cooking the meal and trusting the man of God in the proclamation that he's made. So there's the exercise of faith. Then we see that there, become, there comes a test of faith. And this is a test of faith again, not just for her, but for him because her son dies. The only thing that she cares about is that her son and she can be together until the bitter end. She's already made that really clear. And now she's angry and upset at Elijah and, and, and disappointed and saying, why did you come here and torment me? You got all my hopes up and you gave me uh, the, this provision and now my son is dead and I'm going to die alone. He's all I had. And you came acting like everything was going to be wonderful and instead my son's dead. Her faith is being tested, but so is Elijah's. Elijah didn't go to God and say, God, what are you doing here? Elijah just says, bring him to me. Your son died. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Bring him here. And so we see this test of faith in verse number 18. And she said unto Elijah, what have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou coming to me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft and where, and where he abode and laid him on his own bed and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon this widow whom I sojourn by slaying her son and stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee let this child life come unto him. And the Lord heard the verse of Elijah and the boy woke up. Faith tested, exercised, God made real and alive. Now I want you to notice the result in this woman's life and the result that it would have had in the life of Elijah. Here's Elijah, clearly, and if you've ever had any avenue of ministry, you can appreciate this. You, you go and you do what you think is right and what you've been trained to do and taught to do and you hope you're doing the right thing, especially early on. If you're a young man, if you're a young person coming in, you're doing the very best that you can and that you know how, and you're just hoping that you don't mess things up too much. Here's Elijah. Elijah was not, there's no indication that before chapter 17 and verse 1 that Elijah was a prophet. He was, a, he was in the land of Gilead. He was just out there. And God plucked him and said, this is what I want you to do. And then God trained him. This is his first foray into practical ministry. And as he goes and he comes to this lady, uh, notice that her response after the son is resurrected. And the woman said unto Elijah, now by this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Now I know that God is real. Imagine the confidence that that gave Elijah. The, 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 I hope I'm doing the right thing, God. Oh, I've done the right thing. 
God is investing in his man. God is preparing Elijah for what he will face. Elijah takes on this posture of war and he goes and pronounces the, the war to Ahab and then he allows God to prepare his heart and then as he goes through this preliminary engagement of battle in the war, he passes the test and wins the victory with flying colors. Secondly, this morning, we see that Elijah fights a very public war. And in beginning in verse, or excuse me, in chapter number 18, uh, we see uh, that he now is standing up to and facing uh, that king. In chapter 18, in the first 15 verses or so, uh, the Bible gives us the account of Elijah going at God's behest to begin to confront Ahab. Obadiah comes on the scene and Elijah says, hey Obadiah, I need you to go find Ahab and you need to tell him I'm going to be here and let's meet. And so Elijah tells them, sends the message, uh, and then <clears throat> after he sends the message, uh, Obadiah argues, I don't want to go do this, I'm going to be killed. Elijah assures him, I will be there. Notice Ahab's response when he meets him. His response, remember, when Elijah said it's not going to rain, was non-existent. There was no response. There's a response now. Now that people are suffering, now that people are dying, now that uh, they're even trying to figure out how to save their animals, their livestock... Art thou he that troubleth Israel, Ahab says to Elijah? He still doesn't get the point. And a lost man who has no desire to serve God and no desire to learn of God is never going to get the point. A Christian that has a seared conscience of the things of God, though you preach the truth and though you try to exhort, are never going to be willing to accept the truth. They're always going to blame someone else. Uh, are you the one that's troubling Israel? And look at his response. I have not troubled Israel, in verse 18, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the Lord, uh, forsaken the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. And so not only does he tell him, Ahab, I'm not the cause of this, you are, but he then tells him why he is. And the battle is on. And what we see here first is that this, in this public war that Elijah has a righteous cause. He is not fighting a, a, a battle that doesn't need to be fought. He is not taking a stand on a, on a, a, a non-issue. He is not trying to fabricate and create something to argue and to fight about. This is a battle that must be waged. This is the, the command and the behest of God. His cause is righteous. It's as like David standing before Goliath as is being mocked and ridiculed and saying, what have I now done is they're not a cause. He stands here and his cause is righteous and then he confronts Ahab and then in verse 21 he turns his attention to the people. And this is not a matter of, uh, this is just some random place where he's meeting. Ahab is there, but obviously there's a crowd of people here. And Elijah in verse 21 came into all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. They knew that they were in sin. They knew that they were against God. They knew that they had made the wrong choice. They knew that those things couldn't be blended and put together. That they couldn't serve God and Baal at the same time. They knew that. They just didn't want to hear it. And Elijah confronts Ahab. And then Elijah turns and confronts the crowd and what we see here is that there is a righteous cause uh, and that righteous cause is declared upon the king and upon the people. This is what this is about. This is about your sin. This is about a righteous and a holy God trying to get your attention so that he can rescue you from your sin. But you won't accept it. 
Then secondly, we see here, not only is his cause righteous, but there is a rigorous engagement. Now the battle is on with the prophets. We don't have time. This runs from verse 25 down through verse 40. We don't have time to read all that this morning. So jot that down and go back and look at it this week. But here's what's going on. Elijah's got Ahab here. He's got all of the people of Israel, a large crowd of people of Israel there. And he's got the 450 prophets of Baal that have been assembled in this one place. And he says to them, you can't have it both ways. So you prophets of Baal, you 450 over here, you build you an altar and you put a sacrifice on it and you call down fire from heaven and I'll do the same and I'll call down fire from heaven and whichever God answers by fire, let him be God. And they all say, amen, we can do that. And you stop and you put yourself in Elijah's shoes. For almost three years, he's been out by a brook and hasn't been in contact with a soul except for God. Then he comes and he spends a little time with a widow woman and her son. His faith has grown, his faith is tested, his ministry is tried out on a very small basis. And now he goes out and he's standing there in front of what has to be at least a few thousand people. The king that is corrupt and wants his head on a platter. And 450 prophets of Baal that want his head on a platter. And he is with confidence and boldness stand up and proclaiming, let God be God. They build their altar. They begin to call and pray to Baal. Baal does not answer. Elijah begins to mock. Elijah begins to defiantly tell them, where is he? Maybe he's out hunting. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he went on vacation. And he just continues on. And they can't take it. And they're just, they're just going on and on. Until finally they start cutting themselves. And they start uh, trying to uh, inflict injury upon themselves to solicit a response from their God. There's no response. A dead God will never respond to you. A dead God cannot respond to you. And it doesn't matter how loud the world cries, it doesn't matter how much they scream, it doesn't matter how much blood is spilt, a dead, non-existent God can never respond. Elijah, when the time has come, gets up, lays out the sacrifice on the altar. Do you realize what a precious commodity water would have been in this economy? Bring some water, fellas. Pour it on there. And just to put in context, I don't know how big the barrels were. I, you know, I, I, we, we don't have any idea. I do know this, that ground that hasn't seen rain for three years can suck up a lot of water before it starts holding it. They poured enough water on there that the wood was saturated and the sacrifice was saturated and the ground was saturated enough to where the trench that they dug around the altar was full of water. The water was standing. And then Elijah says, God, you see what's happening here. Are you God? And the fire fell. And so that there would be no doubt, that fire consumed not just the altar, but the wood. And not just the wood, but the stones. And not just the stones, but the dust. And not just the dust, but the water. It was gone. Great victory. Elijah goes over and looks out, or comes down, kills the 450 wicked prophets of Baal. The physical and the mental exhaustion are mounting. He then goes up with his servant and he looks out and he prays that God would send rain. 
and there's nothing. And he prays again. And the, the servant, seven times he goes to look. Finally, there's a little cloud in the shape of a hand. Go and tell Ahab that rain's coming. Go and tell him that the drought is over. Tell him to get in this chariot and to get home quick because the rain's going to overtake him. He gets in the chariot. He begins to go. Every indication it is that he's riding that chariot as hard as he can ride it. The clouds are mounting. The rain is falling. Elijah starts to run. And Elijah is so empowered by God and God touches him that he outruns the horse that's running full speed and beats Ahab to where they're going. What are we seeing here? We've seen a righteous engagement against the prophets of Baal. We've seen a man that has spiritually, physically, mentally, and emotionally exerted himself in battle for God, for a righteous cause, to do what's right. A rigorous engagement. The relief then comes of victory. And I use that term intentionally, the relief of victory, because at this point, I really believe that the victory and the experience of victory for Elijah was more an experience of relief than it was of euphoria. And I, it seems a little bit simple to use the sports analogy to kind of like put this out here, but I don't know of a better way in our, in our minds and culture to make it resonate. If you take a team that wins a championship in whatever sport the first time, it's more about the euphoria and the excitement of, hey, we've done it. But when they've won two or three or four in a row, it's more pressure. When you're expected to win, there's pressure to win. When you're that team that just kind of comes up and takes everybody by surprise, it's all excitement. When you're the one that is the odds-on favorite, that's proven that you can do, get the job done, there's more pressure. And you watch a team that's won their third, fourth, fifth championship in a row, and every year at the end of it, it, yes, they celebrate, yes, they cry, yes, they hold up the trophy, and they have their big parades, and they're happy. But what they are more than they're anything else is relieved that it's over and that they succeeded. And here's Elijah, so spent, so drained spiritually and emotionally. You understand, when he was with that widow woman, that's not the same amount of time in connection with God personally that it was at Cherith. And when he's standing out there in front of all of Israel and Ahab, that is sucking everything that God has put into him for three years out of him. I never really understood this until we went through Harvey. And I think those of you that had a bad time with Harvey will understand. If you had to redo your house, and I had to redo my house, but I also had the burden of the church and, uh, and, and everybody else. And I'm not saying this complaining, I'm just saying this is a reality that I really came through Harvey as a pastor thanking God and feeling like, God, you've really helped lead us through this and you've strengthened us and you've provided for our needs. But I'm going to tell you something. It took a full two years and maybe longer before I felt like I was over it, like I recovered from it after it was done. There were weeks where it was just like I was just getting from Sunday to Sunday. There were weeks where everything was a struggle and when there really wasn't a whole lot of joy in anything. 
And it wasn't that I was not spending time with God. It wasn't that I wasn't praying. It wasn't that I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. It wasn't that I wasn't being where I was supposed to be. I'm just telling you from the standpoint of being a pastor that led even a church as small as ours with 10 families that flooded and had to rebuild their house and my own house and everything in this church except for this room in the lobby, uh, that the, the weight of that and the draining effect of that mentally, physically, emotionally, and, and spiritually was exhausting. Now I say that to say this. Elijah in chapter 19 has just won this incredible victory. And all of a sudden in chapter number 19, in verse number 1, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets of the, with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do unto me and the more also, if I may not make thy, not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba. All my life I've looked at that passage and I've thought, Elijah, what is wrong with you? How can you stand up to 450 prophets, Ahab, and all of Israel and defy them and call fire down from heaven and now one woman comes to you and says she wants to take your life and you tuck your tail and you run? This never made sense to me. It makes sense to me now. Because what Elijah was, was spiritually, physically, and emotionally spent. He gave everything that he had to defeat the prophets of Baal. And he had no time of recovery after. He had to go right into another battle that he again didn't see coming. And so Elijah has fought a public war, but what we see now is that Elijah must face a private war. And I'm just telling you this morning that the Christian life is a series of exercises of faith and that we must at times take on a posture of war. And most of the time that war is against the person that lives within us. And when we engage in battle with this flesh, when we engage in battle with our own person and who we are, the end result of that is mental and spiritual exhaustion. And it drains us. And Elijah fights this public war and he wins victory. But now this private war is upon him. And what we see in those first three verses is that there is a price for battle. The mental, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion that came with it. He flees. He goes and finds a juniper tree and he just parks himself under it. He's just waiting there to die. Now he's like the widow woman. I'm just going to rub two sticks together here and eat my little meal and die. He doesn't have anything else to give. But God does. And what we see is the price of the battle. Secondly, what we see is the provocation of the enemy. You have to understand, Jezebel's threat was not an idle threat. It was a real threat. It was a powerful threat. And what we see is this powerful threat that you now, in your moment of vulnerability, are going to be executed. That threat resonated with him and he did not feel that he could stand and so it was powerful. Not only was it powerful, but as I've demonstrated already, it came at a time of personal weakness. Listen, Satan always knows when you're vulnerable. 
One of the things that I learned after five years of running a boys' home, being a youth pastor, was that it didn't matter how many kids that I had. I had generally 20 to 24 in the homes, and I had about 70 in my youth group, uh, including those 20 to 24. And what I basically discovered was that I had about five or six different kids. And over the course of that five years, the names and the faces changed, but the kids stayed the same. You know what I've learned in the last 18 years as a pastor? The same thing. That the names and the faces change, but the problems and the personality types and the issues, good and bad, are the same. They're the same basic, and you think, if I can figure that out, that Satan hasn't figured that out in 6,000 years of tormenting mankind? That from generation to generation, our names and our faces change, but the same basic people are here. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Even if he's never met us because he knows our type. He knows how to push our buttons. He knows our moment. He knows when we're weak and vulnerable. He knows when we're susceptible to attack. He knows when the right time to strike is. He's probably not going to come and make a major attack at a time when you're super spiritually strong and braced and ready for the fight. He's going to wait until you let your guard down until you're weak and vulnerable. That's the way he operates. That's where Elijah is. Jezebel comes and makes a powerful threat in a moment of his mo when he is the most vulnerable. And it crushes him. So we see the price of the battle, the provocation of the enemy. Thirdly, we see the preservation now of a sovereign God. The preservation of a sovereign God. The same God that preserved him when he proclaimed war and put him to Cherith and took care of feeding him and giving him what he needed and investing in him is the same God that comes to his aid now. You look and you consider that this in verses 5 through 18 of chapter 19. And again, we can't read all of this this morning for sake of time. Uh, but he, in verse 8, and he arose and did eat and drink. What's happened here is he's under this juniper and an angel comes. God comes and, and sits down with him and says, eat and drink. You can't stay here like this. You have to eat and you have to drink. And the angel has to tell him twice. And then he touches him, arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. And God acknowledges in your condition right now, in this moment, you do not have the strength to get up and to go and do this, but you've got to. I'm giving you what you need. I'm feeding you. I'm nourishing your spirit and your soul and your body. And he arose and did eat and drink and went on the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights into Horeb, the Mount of God. And you would think after that, oh, he's back. No, he's not back yet. This is a prolonged depression. And when you look at a lot of biblical studies of depression, this is the text, this is the passage that you study. When you look and you consider what he's going to, and God comes to him and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? In verse 9. And he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. He feels alone and isolated and cut off, though he is not. There are thousands there that God has preserved. 
And the beauty of verses 11 and 12, when God comes and says, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And the Lord uh, passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. God's there. In His power, speaking with a still small voice lovingly to his exhausted servant to restore him and to refresh him. And as the rain came and brought the word and refreshment and restoration to the land, the presence of God and the worship of God come now to the prophet as he is alone and give him that refreshment and restoration that he needs. The preservation of a sovereign God. We see three thoughts about this and we'll be done this morning. The first thing is that it restored his strength. When God showed back up, when he got to a quiet place, when all the dust settled and he came apart and got alone with God uh, and was able to, to remove himself, to, re, to be refreshed. Notice it says in, in verse number uh, in verse number 8 uh, where he says, And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days. He, he had restored strength. The second thing we see is that his spirit is restored in verse number 12. That still small voice. God gave him strength. God renewed his spirit. And then finally we see that he's restored to service. In verse number 15, now God comes to him and says, And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. What is he? He's just gone through this tremendous battle. God has now come to him and loved him and found him and restored him and refreshed him and puts him back in ministry. You notice that he didn't put him back into a major battle right away? It's just a normal prophetly duty. Go and anoint this person to be king. Just get back to business. Just get back to serving me. And what I'm saying this morning and what I've been trying to build up to for these last five weeks is this. That the Christian life is a spiritual warfare. That I, there is a spiritual battle that rages. And that battle lives within me. And that battle, I'm to take every thought captive. I am to put on the armor. I am to get ready and plan to go to war for God. But I can't do that if I don't have a life of faith. And I can't do that if I don't live in the righteousness of Christ. And I'll never succeed at that if I don't understand and live in the presence of my God. And I certainly uh, will never uh, be all that I can be for God until I learn to worship Him the way that He deserves to be loved and to be worshipped and experiencing Him on that level prepares me for the battles that come in life even when those battles are overwhelming when I stand in that battle I will either be overwhelmed by it or I will be let God overwhelm me in the moment and win victory Elijah's life his ministry is not over and we're not going any farther in this this morning but it ends with him here other than having one servant he's alone other than this runner that he had to go look out over the cliff or to go send an errand or a message, he's alone. There, there's no friend. There's no family. There's no, it's just him and God. And God sends him to Elisha. And Elisha 
gets trained by the great prophet Elijah until Elijah finally is called home to heaven. And he doesn't die like we die. He just rides home in a fiery chariot. I'd say God was well pleased with Elijah. But that doesn't mean that Elijah had it easy. That doesn't mean that the battle didn't take a toll. And I'm just saying this morning that you're going to go through periods of time in your life when the battle of life is going to take a toll mentally and spiritually on you. And you will either go and sit under a juniper tree or go find a cave and hide and you'll wither away and you'll die. Or you'll be listening for that still small voice to come and restore you. Allow God to get a hold of your heart. Be wise enough to understand that when you've had times of great spiritual exertion, that you must make time to come away and to refresh and to restore. Don't wait until a mental and emotional and spiritual breakdown before you get alone with God and let God refresh and rebuild your life. The Christian life is a spiritual war. I'm going to make this statement. We'll be done this morning. When I allow myself to be overwhelmed by circumstances in my life, I will end in defeat. But when I'm overwhelmed by God, I can live in victory. How are you? Are you life is overwhelming. And I could go around the room this morning and I could point out specific things. A, a flooded house was overwhelming, a stroke is overwhelming. COVID can be overwhelming. Surgeries, traffic accidents, drug issues, alcohol problems, relational issues, overwhelming. But that's life. God did not expect and, and God does not force us to live life in defeat. God wants us to live in victory. And I will either be overwhelmed by those events and those things or I will allow God to overwhelm me. How do I do that, Pastor? Well, it starts with faith. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're not sure that you have a home in heaven, then the grace of God is waiting right here, right now to save your soul. But he cannot act until you exercise faith and invite him into your heart. When you do that, he imputes his righteousness to you, to your account. And through faith, we have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ laid to our account. And as God transforms us and we live righteously in Christ Jesus, we are made able and it's possible for us to do that because he gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell our heart so that we can live every moment of every day in the presence of our God. And when our attention and our focus is on God and not on us, on God and not on our problems, on the Lord and not on our own dreams and desires, then when we live in that presence, it provokes our worship of him. And in our worship of him, he lives in and through us and he acts through us and he sends us out as his ambassadors to a world to defend the faith, to fight the good fight of faith, to contend for the faith, realizing that the battle is real, that there are going to be times when it's going to be exhausting. There are going to be times when he's going to have to invest in us. And there are going to be times when it's all done that you're going to have to pull back and say, I've got to step out for a while and I've got to renew my spirit with God. And when I do that, I can live in the victory of the overwhelming presence and power of God. And if I don't, I'll go down, overwhelmed by this world and defeat.
But praise God, I have a choice. And I have a God who makes it all possible.